Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. So we've been, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. We are in some of the middle chapters. We are in chapter 11 right now. And one of the, the more controversial pictures is this two witnesses that appear. Now, these two witnesses are, are were said to prophesy for about 1,260 days, which is actually the same as 42 months or three and a half years. And so I, a lot of times in pictures, what is being conveyed is the weight of something. It's not really, it's not really talking to you about an exact literal 1260 days is trying to get you to feel the weight of how long God is going to not only permit but but send a dynamic witness into this world as a mercy to all those who do not know Jesus and he he holds and withholds his hand because he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed he wants all to be saved and so that there's, a, there's a, a kindness of God that's even in these numbers and a compassion of God. And so when we're thinking about these two witnesses, one of the things I, that is a, an interesting little, little tidbit is when they come, they're dressed in sackcloth. Now, you know what sackcloth means, right? It means repentance. It means mourning. So these witnesses are not coming in royal robes. They're not coming in in luxury. They're coming in humility, and they're calling people. They're calling people to repent. But they're also. I think that one of the things that you have to understand is that these witnesses, though they are a prophetic picture, they have many fulfillments. For example, when this was first prophesied, it was prophesied through Zechariah. And there was a a fulfillment in the days of Zechariah. There were these two leaders. One was called Joshua. He was the high priest. And there was Zerubbabel, who was the governmental leader. And they were a fulfillment of these two witnesses because their assignment was to take the, the people of God, the people of Judah, bring them out of the Babylonian exile, bring them back to the promised land. There will be, as there always is, with a a prophetic, a a deeply prophetic word or a deeply prophetic picture, there will always be an ultimate fulfillment. Now, I don't know what the ultimate fulfillment will be because John doesn't tell us. He basically says, here's the description of these two witnesses. They are two lampstands. And they are two olive trees that stand before the Lord. So it could be, like many people have postured, many people have put forth that at some point, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And when that happens, there will be incredible conflict on the earth. It's possible that that will happen. I don't know if it will, but it could. 
And then there are those that say that these two witnesses are basically either Moses, Enoch, or Elijah, those who were taken up to heaven without dying. Now, there is some, in my mind, there's some questions about that. Number one, I don't know that the temple will ever be rebuilt because the sacrifice that the temple pointed to is Jesus. And the Lamb of God has been sacrificed for the sins of the world. There's no longer any other sacrifice for sins because none of those bulls or goats or sheep or anything else ever atone for any sins. Only the blood of Jesus. The blood of those animals was pointing to the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The other thing is this. I, I, don't, I don't know if you remember, but Elijah and Moses have shown up already. And they didn't have sackcloth on. They were in their glorified state in such a way that the, the, the appearance was a, called the transfiguration. And the disciples saw Moses and saw Elijah, and they wanted to make a tabernacle there and just stay there because they were so awed by the glory that they saw. I don't know that Moses and Elijah will come back in sackcloth. So what I think is whatever the ultimate fulfillment is, nobody who writes commentaries knows. But I do know this. As far as witnesses, you're it. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses when the Holy Ghost, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't think predicting who that will be at the end helps you, but I think it helps you to go, wait a minute. If I will read this and study this, I'll understand how I'm supposed to be a witness. And part of your identity, it's wonderful when you say, I'm a son of the Most High God, or you say, I'm a daughter of the King. That's wonderful, but part of your identity is also your mission. It's fulfilling your purpose. And this descriptor, this picture, describes your purpose. It says this, it says you're a lampstand, but... You know what a lampstand was? It's not a menorah. A lampstand was a piece of freestanding furniture that was filled with oil that had a flame. So one, guy, one person said it this way. A lampstand is a flame holder. Now, a flame holder without oil has no flame. And a flame holder without flame is nothing more than decoration. So there are many believers who are excited that they're going to heaven, but who don't live for their purpose, do not live in their identity, do not resource their light from the oil that is theirs to have. Because this text says that not only is it a lampstand, but next to the lampstand is an olive tree that continually supplies the oil. The only thing holding you back from being a flame holder is you. The supply is there, but is the alignment there? So here's what I'd like you to do. Turn to your neighbor. I like it when you do this. Point at him. And I want you to say this. This is your identity. This is your mission. 
This is your purpose. You are resourced with oil from the Lord, oil from his spirit. You are a flame holder. You are a lampstand. You're not a decoration. You're a flamethrower. See, whether you believe it or not, it's true. But if you don't believe it, then you don't receive it. It's something you have to activate. People say to me all the time, I'm so dry in my spiritual life. I said, that's because you don't have the oil. No oil person is dry. It's because you don't have the fire. People say to me all the time, I'm so burnt out. I said, then you're using your own oil and it's your own fire. Because if, if you're the flame holder, you've got to be resourced outside of yourself in order to have the flame. But here's the thing that it says about this, these two witnesses, which I'm saying, you're it for now. It says they're protected. It says they're so protected that nobody on earth can do anything to them that won't end up being worse for them. That's why people shouldn't mess with you. You never have to get revenge. You are protected. What was that we said when kids? It bounces off me and comes right back to you. That's what the scripture says. It says as bad as they come at you, it comes at them much worse. I, 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 I'm not trying to make this up. I'm saying... If you will believe this, you don't have to get revenge. And you don't have to protect yourself. Because the Lord has said they can't do anything to you when you're on assignment for him. But it also says this. When you're operating in your assignment, you have the kind of authority that Elijah had. And you have the kind of authority that Moses had. You understand, Moses didn't just go up and practice splitting water. Oh, here's a ditch. Be, be, be parted. He didn't do that. The only time he did it was when he was assigned to do it. But here's the interesting thing. The water didn't part till Moses extended his authority. There are so many things that are going on in your life that you're complaining about when you need to take your rod of authority and say, I'm extending my authority. Because if it's your assignment, you have authority. As a matter of fact, Elijah only once shut the heavens of rain. But it was under assignment. But when he did it, the rain didn't come for three and a half years. Ah, listen, another 42 months, another 1260 days. See, those, those things are symbolic. It's saying you're not only protected, but you're empowered. But you're protected and empowered as you fulfill your purpose. As you're on assignment, you will do greater things, Jesus said, than even he did. These things you shall do, he said, and greater than these because I go to my Father. So as long as you're walking in the path of the witness, 
As long as you're living in the identity of flame holder, as long as you're resourced by an inside olive tree that automatically produces oil for your fire, then you will live empowered and protected. But most of us do not live in our assignment. And therefore, we're trying to get oil from other places. And then we wonder why we have so little fire. Now, that was assignment one. Here's part two. So I like it when you read with me. This is the other part of Revelation chapter 11. This is the witnesses part two. Are you tracking with me so far? Two of you. That's all I need. All right, ready? I like it when you read with me. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will wage war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets tormented the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, you got to pay a price. To be a witness comes with a price. You have to be someone who doesn't fear death. You have to be someone who doesn't fear other people, especially people who can harm you. Now, the interesting thing here is the people don't harm the prophets. The beast harms the prophets. Now, let's look at the context of this just a little bit. The first thing is that they are witnessing in the world that we live in. So these words have meaning, Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. These are the three places that are mentioned of where the prophets are uh, causing the torment, in a sense. So what does Sodom stand for? Sodom stands for every form of immorality. Not just sexual immorality, but every form of immorality. And then Egypt stands for slavery and oppression, for the, for the whole of what took place during the, the 400 years of enslaving the, uh, the Israelites. And then Jerusalem is the center of religion without Jesus. So what you have here is you have, you have an alignment against the messengers and the witness of God that comes from religion that comes from oppression, and that comes from immorality. And what, what is going on here in terms of religion is this. When you have religion without Jesus, then what you have is performance without grace. Because you have to do what God wants you to do perfectly, which no one can do. So then you have to begin to make up things that make you look good so that you can exploit, in a sense, all of our need to have comparative justification. Here's what people do. If you ever ask them, okay, say, uh, you know, why should God let you into his heaven? They're, they'll say something like this. At least I don't judge people. 
I'm like, you just judge people right there. You judge them as judging and you not being judging. So you just failed your own test. Because, see, we can't, we can't, in a way, when we have self-salvation strategies, we can't let you be better than me. And so a lot of people who even come to church will go, well, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I don't do what that person did. See, that's not grace. That's performance. That's not the cross. That's me being able to achieve by my own willpower. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is level ground. There are no better sinners or worse sinners. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And anyone who receives the blessings and the benefit of the cross does so as someone who realizes I'm way more evil than I ever thought, but I'm far more loved than I ever could have believed. So that's the backdrop, you see. So it's, it's not just irreligion. It's actually religion that hates the message. And in hating the message, they hate the messengers. So I think this is interesting that we've been talking about this 42 months and we've been talking about this 1,260 days. And then all of a sudden it says they kill these two prophets, but they're only allowed to be dead for three and a half days. I want you to understand something. God will never allow you to suffer humiliation any longer than has to. Jesus was humiliated. But even when he had paid the price and said, it is finished, the debt is paid. Do you know where he went? He went to a rich man's grave. Whatever humiliation he had suffered ended the minute the price was paid. And he began his exaltation. You understand what God has said to you in your life, all your life, whether you know it or not, is if you will humble yourself at the appropriate time, he will exalt you. And so this three and a half days is what it takes to complete, to complete the purposes of God for the lives of these witnesses. It's a very short period of time, actually. But during that three and a half days, it looks like they're utterly defeated. And so what happens is, all these religious people have been tormented by the message of the prophets. The irreligious people have been so angry by the message of the prophets that as soon as they die, they celebrate their death. <laughs> you know why they celebrate? Because here's the way we think. If somebody can die, then they must not be right. See, we were right to resist them because they're killable. That's what they said at the cross. The idea here in this picture is there's nothing more humiliating than to leave somebody's dead body out in the view of everyone. And do you know what it says they did? They, they threw parties, and they actually sent gifts to each other. They made the death of the witnesses like Christmas. Now, here's the thing that you got to... Are you, are you hearing me this morning? Yes. This is really important stuff to get in your mind to understand what's going on in your life. You're not living in a world that celebrates your life. You're living in a world that celebrates your death. 
You're not living in a world that celebrates your message. You're living in a world that celebrates when your message no longer has to be heard. That's what guilt does. That's what shame does. Even if your intent is never to shame someone, their shame and their rejection and their guilt hears everything through that. So that even if you give a simple message, there is a hearing problem. So if we can get rid of you, then we don't have to listen to you. But you remember what I said about them in their assignment part one? They were protected. Notice what comes to get them. Not humans. The beast. From the bottomless pit. This is definitely a satanic could be Satan himself, but it's definitely a satanic agenda, a satanic person. They could not be killed by ordinary means, so they had to be stopped by extraordinary means. I don't know where you're at in your worldview, but a lot of what's going on in your life is bigger than just people not liking you. There, there is a supernatural agenda. I believe, and you, could, you, can, you, know, you can dispute me, but I believe your family has had a demon assigned to it. And I think they have all the psychological files on your family. So they know all of your tendencies. Have you ever noticed Satan doesn't tempt you with things that don't tempt you? That that's because he has intelligence on you. The things that you're dealing with, this is why you have to be, if you're going to really be a witness, friends, this is why you have to be a person of prayer. This is why you have to be a person of the word. This is why you have to be a worshiper. Because you can't fight supernatural agendas with natural means. And again, hear me again, until the ultimate fulfillment of these two witnesses, you're it. And the enemy knows it. He knows you're the flame holders. He knows that in this area of New York, New Jersey, the tri-state area, the metropolitan area, he knows where the flame holders are. And he also has a dossier on your tendencies. And some of you, sometimes you're like, why does everything always go wrong? Because he knows what will make you lose your peace What will make you lose your boldness? What will make you feel like you're not safe? See, this this passage says the two witnesses were immortal until their assignment was done. Then their assignment was to die. Because they could not have died otherwise. But then, you see, friends, a glorious resurrection takes place. Now, it very well could be, there are many people who say this, and I, I, don't, I don't dispute it, but I don't think it's enough. They say that at the, in the last days, these two specific witnesses will come to give the Jewish people one last chance. And that's why many people say it has to be like Moses, or it has to be Elijah, or any of those people. But I don't think this is really referring to ultimate fulfillment of resurrection. I think that this is actually a pattern that happens over and over and over again. I think it happens in your life. I think it happens in the church's life. 
Now, one of the commentators I love is an exegete by the name of William Hendrickson. His commentaries are are really good, very thorough. And he said something so interesting on this passage. He says, and he wrote this in the 1940s. He said, the gospel age, and that's the age you and I have been living in, is at some point going to come to an end. This mighty missionary organization we call the church is going to be in a place where there will be no place where it's easy to give our testimony. The reason for that, he says, is the same as this situation with the witnesses. The beast comes to make war or battle against the church, and his only objective is to destroy the church. Now, some people think there'll be no Christians at the end. I I don't see how that can be. Because of this, when Paul talks about Jesus' return, he says, Jesus will turn with those who went before us, and we which are alive will meet him in the air. So there's going to be unbowed, unbroken Christians all the way to the end. And when Jesus comes as the conquering hearer, those who have been unbowed and unbroken will be raced out to meet the conquering hero, and we will meet him in the air, it says. And it says this, and we will ever be with the Lord. Okay, but everything we've been reading, and you may be mad at me for saying this, and it's okay, because it'll bounce off me and come back to you. Somebody, somebody told me once, I'm too amused with myself. <laughs> I'm saying this because it does get heavy. It gets intensely worse. I mean, if you feel like it's intensifying, it's everything Revelation tells us. It said at one point when the seals were open, a quarter of the earth was destroyed. Then it said a third of the earth. We haven't even gotten to the ones that say the whole earth. So you have an increasing intensity. And so you and I, as you see, we can't be believers in circumstances. I love you, Lord, because my job is great. I love you, Lord, because my wife does everything I want her to do. I love you, Lord, because my children are such blessed children and they never rebel against me. (laughs) Do you remember where we live? We live in Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. We live in religion without Jesus. We live in the most immoral of times. And we live in a place where people are enslaved to every lust of their life. And to all kinds of power and every kind of thing. So for us to say we love Jesus only when it's convenient for us will not do. Now, what this means, what what this pattern means is something really interesting. And so Hendrickson was talking in in this commentary, got me thinking. He began to talk about what happened in China in the 40s and 50s. Now, if you remember, there had been a great missionary movement into the into the the villages and places of China. There were many, many sincere believers. But when Mao Zedong took over China and outlawed Christianity, the public expression of Christianity was killed. 
And it was not legal to be a Christian. So you couldn't, in any unhindered way, proclaim the gospel. You had to be underground. You had to, be, you had to make sure that you kept yourself safe. So what had happened, in a sense, is the church had been killed. The church had been flattened. But here's what one writer said. God has breathed from heaven into China. And some people I know think that there are countless millions of believers hidden away in China who have been raised up in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some friends of mine just 10 years ago did a training in China with underground house church leaders who actually represented multiple millions of house churches. So even when the enemy kills the church or flattens the church, God breathes life into the church. Now, I'm going to give you another example of this. I took our church in, in 2007. I took us to Uganda. About uh, 1.16 of us from church went to do ministry in Uganda. Now, what I did was a little research. Back in 1956, there was a church in Vancouver, a Pentecostal church in Vancouver that was having a missionary uh, like uh, uh, gathering, and this young girl saw in a vision the word Uganda. Now, she had no idea what Uganda was, so they had to look on the map to find Uganda. Even the pastor didn't know, but she saw the, the name Uganda in neon lights, and this church, this Pentecostal church, felt like this is God calling us to a mission to Uganda, and there were no Pentecostal churches in Uganda whatsoever. And so they, over the, year, over the next few years, they began to do this mission to Uganda. Now listen what happened. They held open-air crusades in different towns. One of the towns, Mingo, had this crusade. And they started getting these testimonies. I love this one. He says, one Congolese man whose wife had been dumb, and it means she couldn't speak, not that she was dumb, for four years had her tongue loosed, and she could talk again. So this, they had like a breakthrough of miracles that then brought many other miracles. And before long, crowds were flocking to these open-air meetings. And some of the ones who came were princesses in the royal palaces. And one of the princesses, who was a sister to the king, she got saved, she got healed, and she became one of the believers. And before long, there were thousands of people baptized in the king's lake. Okay, you tracking with me so far? So then, in the 70s, Idi Amin took over and said he would destroy the Pentecostal church. He started burning and churches. He started sending the army. It would be like, we are here this morning, and an army would come in with, with guns. And what they did is they started shooting up the roof, and then they started shooting at the pulpit. <laughs> I was like, that's why we don't have a pulpit. Uh, so the pastor, the pastor said this. He said, I was at the pulpit preaching. When the army invaded us, they started firing at the roof and the pulpit where I was standing. When the firing intensified, people stood up, raised their hands, and prayed in tongues. The firing ceased. Now, they, they explain this is that basically, Amin made, it to where, Amin made it to where no public services 
could be held, but he could not hold back the spirit of devotion to God. The pastor said, we operated underground. Believers started meeting in their homes. He explained that when Amin was, was toppled in 1979, believers who met in homes began holding open-air meetings everywhere. These were what people referred to as mushrooming churches. Why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because your identity is to be a flame holder. But when you are a flame holder, you have an enemy. And the enemy is supernatural. How else do you explain that you could stop bullets supernaturally except the enemy is supernatural? But here's the thing. When we went there, we went to the hometown of Idi Amin. We had an open-air crusade of 50,000 people. The last night, 3,000 gave their lives to Christ. You see, what's hard for us to believe is that the three and a half days are short. You might be flattened right now. You might feel crushed right now. It's hard to believe, will I ever come out of this? Well, let me give you one one more story. So one of my mentors, uh, someone I really love, and, and it was like a big brother, father figure to me, um, was a great man of God. He was a pioneer. He was apostolic. He, he led crusades. He led these, the, all these things all over the world. He saw wonderful, powerful miracles of God. He was a man of the Spirit. He was invited to become the president of a Christian college, and he brought the things of the Spirit to the college. Many of the status quo people hated it and looked for a way to get rid of him. So during a, a period of time that was, that was kind of all happening in, in academia, someone found a mistake on his educational background. They used that educational mistake to destroy him. His problem went all the way from this small little Christian college to a New York Times article about how he had cheated on his resume. All of those people who hated the things of the Spirit rose up and got him out of there. I remember when he had to leave. It was crushing. It, it felt like a death. Death to the things of the Spirit at that school. Death to the things of God. And death to my friend. But you know what my friend did? He stayed a flame holder. He, he bore without bitterness what he lost. He went through his death so that he could get to his resurrection. And he kept preaching and, and proclaiming the manifest presence of Christ to anybody and everybody who would listen. <laughs> Just recently... I found out he's one of the most popular teachers in China. In Taiwan, his program is higher than Joyce Myers or Joel Osteen. He's called Papa Don. They have billboards of him in Taiwan. You see, sometimes what happens is we want to be raised in what we were always doing. But sometimes the vision has to die for God's dream to be realized. Sometimes we have to go through what I would say is a spiritual formation process that's very difficult. 
you have to realize that you will experience, like Jesus, he was rejected. You have to experience, like Jesus, he was slain. But without the rejection, without the slaying, there is no resurrection. So there are things in your life where you said, this was my dream. You've got to let it go so God can rise from the dead. There are places where you're flattened, and you've got to let it go. And you've got to stay in touch with that olive tree that gives you that olive oil for the anointing. Now, I'm doing all the work, and you look tired. I never understand that. <laughs> I want to finish with this, okay? Will you stay with me a little bit longer? So the final trumpet sounds. After all of this takes place, the final trumpet sounds. And this is, this is what we read about it. Would you read it with me? Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Then the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, singing, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. See, one of the things that I want you to understand is everything that's happening in the book of Revelation, every good thing, every bad thing, is all about this one thing that God is doing. He is opening heaven. See, even if someone is persecuting you, they are still, they are still someone you should lead to Christ. Even if there is someone who is antagonistic towards you, the very ones who nailed Jesus to the cross were the very ones he was dying for. And so part of what happens to believers is when we feel slighted, we want revenge. We want them to hurt. But God, in his grace and in his covenant, takes the people who have hurt him, who are enemies of him, and he makes them his friends. So part of being a true flame holder is to recognize that people that you least like might be the most likely to enter heaven with you. It will definitely be people who are not the same culture as you, who are not the same tribe as you, who don't have the same language or accent as you. And anything that would make you have affinity with people is not the thing that makes them fit for heaven. What makes us fit for heaven is to recognize we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And we're so evil, he had to die for us. But we're so loved, he chose to do so. Now, let me finish with this. I'll just give you one little... Is it going there? There it is. I, oh, up there, it went away. <laughs> give me the last slide. There you go. So I didn't read this verse because I wanted you to hear it by itself. When the trumpet sounds, it says, the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great. 
I want you to understand, this is one of the sweetest little verses right in there. See, I think in many ways, the only thing I can imagine right now is how sweet it's going to be to see the face of Jesus, the face I've always longed to see, and to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think nothing could beat that, because I believe this, that all that I have lost, all that I have sacrificed, I believe all of it will be gone in the minute when I see his face, because I'll say, all of it was worth you. But this says there's something more. It says that for those of you who take this seriously, there will come a day when he will say, I see how you served me. I see how you spoke for me. Let me, let me make this clear. Catholic church do not make saints. Only God can make someone a saint. And what's clear about who the saints are, they're small and great. Because anything that is devoted to God is holy unto God. And that which is holy is a saint. Not that which has done holy things, but that which has become holy because in Christ is their righteousness. If you are in Christ, and you might be the worst person in this room, and I'm looking around to see who that is. I think I saw it. But if you devote yourself to Christ and you devote your life to, to God in Christ, then whether you're small or great, the reward is great, it says. There's a sweetness to this. And what is he saying then? He's saying this. Their day is going to come where Jesus is going to involuntary rule over everybody. But what you can do before the trumpet sounds is you say, Lord, rule and reign over me. You can bring the kingdom into your house, at your work, at your school, in your relationships. What is this text saying? It said, do not miss a day, friends. Never miss an opportunity to be faithful. Even if you're in that three and a half day death period, flattened as a pancake, you're going to rise again. You will suffer. It's part of the gospel. But you bear fruit when you self-sacrifice, when you pray sacrificially, when you're courageous in your witness, and when you're bold for Jesus. Well, what's being asked of us is self-denying integrity where you work and where you live. But here's the thing that I keep seeing. I see people who say, I'm going to heaven, but they bring nothing under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're married, bring your marriage under the banner. Lord, rule and reign in our marriage. See, that means you're not in control. He is. That means you're not the source. He is. He won't fail you. If you've got a difficult family, bring it under the banner. What does it say in the scriptures? His banner over us is love. Anything you bring under the banner means you're resourced with his love. But here's what I'm asking of you. It's okay if you don't see the fruit in this life. It's okay if you don't fully understand why you have to be obedient when it's so hard. But he says this, he doesn't miss any of your faithfulness. He doesn't ignore any of your obedience. He says, God rewards his servants, his prophets, his saints. 
the reward. I've been really touched with this because I've been at a couple of funerals and I've, I've heard people talking about where our loved ones are. I want you to understand something. Our loved ones are in a holding pattern. They're in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But they're, according to Revelation, they're saying, Lord, how long do you make all things right? So there is, a, there is a sense in which they're waiting for what you're waiting for. And that is for everything we ever dreamed of, all the sadness undone, all the injustice become, become righteousness, all of the things that we have, a, uh, we have a heart for. I mean, don't you at times just go, can't it just be peaceful and loving and joyful? And can't it just be that we serve one another without selfishness? Well, all of that will not happen till this becomes the new Jerusalem. So even our loved ones who are waiting for us are saying, how long, O Lord? And we are saying, how long, O Lord? And chapter 11 says, now. Now. And here's the thing. You're not going to live on a cloud looking like an angel with a scanning, you know, a white robe on and playing a harp music you don't even like or any of that kind of stuff. Do you know that everything you're experiencing now is a taste of everything that's waiting for you? You know, when you have a sense and you say, This is my sweet spot, this is what I was made for, that's a taste of your heavenly, eternal purpose. When you have a moment with your friends, then you're having a family and you're having a conversation and it just seems like it goes so fast, but you, you spent hours, but it was just felt like minutes. That's you realize that's what it is to be in a world of love. You're not going to a place of cessation. You're going to a place of realization. You're going to a place where your deepest dreams are realized, where your greatest losses are waiting for you. And so he says, even to sweeten it even more, those who align, those who do their assignment, there's a reward. He says, it's worth it. Stay in the three and a half days. Stay in that period of flattening because I can raise you up. Will you stand with me? All right, I got carried away. I'm sorry. 1225. The children's people are going to kill me. Are you hearing me at all today? See, you can't do this just half-heartedly. It doesn't mean that at times you don't lose your way. It doesn't mean that at times you don't lose the oil. But quit saying that you're okay when your oil is low. Quit saying it's okay when the fire... It is never okay for a flame holder to be without oil. It is never okay for a flame holder to be without flame. Because the flame produces heat and it produces light. And that's what you're called to to be both heat and light. Would you do this with me? Can we just lift our hands to the Lord? Maybe you've never done it before. I don't care. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Look at, think about when your hands are open like this, 
It's kind of like the, it's like the picture of that vessel. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to ask the Lord to fill. To fill and to flame. So would you say it with me? Fill. fill. Flame. flame. Say it again. Fill. fill. Flame. It's a supernatural resource, friends. You're not called to make it in your own. You're called to draw from a continual supply. Whatever the Spirit is telling you in these next days, do not ignore it. Listen closely. Jump to it. Answer quickly. Make your default setting yes. And see how he will breathe resurrection into your life. In Jesus' name, amen.